Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here ends the epistle. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you will open your word to our hearts and our minds, and our hearts and our minds to your word. We pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you're uh, visiting this morning, can I say that uh, we're in a short series uh, in these sermons on some of the 39 articles of the Church of England. Uh, and it falls to me to uh, uh, help you think through uh, the longest and perhaps the most difficult to understand.
but it is of great importance. It's the article entitled of predestination and election. Uh, and it therefore presupposes the uh, absolute sovereignty of God uh, as it affects uh, individual men and women. Uh, the opening words of the article, Article 17, are these. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his secret, his counsel secret to us, to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind, and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. But that immediately raises questions. What therefore I want to do this morning is to see what the Bible says about predestination and uh, then to help you see how wise, uh, correct and helpful the article really is. And our main passage is going to be Romans 8, 26 to 39. That's on page 944 of your Bibles in the pews. And my headings, after some marks, uh, remarks of introduction, uh, are first, the reason for thinking about predestination. Secondly, the facts concerning predestination. And uh, thirdly, our response to predestination and this article 17. By way of introduction, let me just say this. We're dealing with a subject uh, with, uh, which in the history of the Christian church has led some to ask the wrong questions and draw the wrong conclusions. For if the God of the Bible is there and real, uh, then as the Apostle Paul says a little later on in uh, Romans, uh, he says in chapter 11, verse 23, how unsearchable are his God's judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So it's easy to get things wrong if you go beyond what God has revealed. For God cannot reveal everything about his judgment and ways because some things we would not understand. Such is his greatness. And uh, some things he does reveal are paradoxical truths. For example, our subject this morning, the fact that we are both fully predestined by God but also free. For God sovereignly and mysteriously works along with our free choices. That was famously true uh, in the case of Joseph. Some of you remember uh, that story in the Old Testament. He was sold by his brothers into Egyptian slavery, but then uh, he became the prime minister. So later in life, he could say to his brothers, this is Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Well enough by way of introduction. So the first heading, the reason for thinking about predestination. We're looking at Romans 8, uh, which among other things is about life in the spirit. But such living will include suffering and difficulties. Uh, listen to Romans 8, uh, verses 16, 17, a bit before our passage. Uh, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there will be present suffering, and indeed that includes persecution uh, when that happens. 
However, we can have hope and we can have confidence among all the problems we experience. First, there's the hope of heaven. Uh, in verse 18, Paul writes of Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be uh, revealed. And then secondly, there is the wonderful truth that the Holy Spirit will help us with our prayers uh, when we feel vulnerable, verse 28, uh, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And thirdly, there is the great fact that God is sovereign. And so verse 28, you read this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And that is why Paul is going to be talking about predestination and being called according to God's purpose. For it will encourage you going through those hard times of whatever sort, physical or spiritual. Well, then that brings us secondly to the facts concerning predestination. However, someone may already be saying, well, does predestination really give you hope? If the future is all fixed, what can you do positively about your problems and to change things? But that is why you must note the last paragraph of Article 17, which says this, Furthermore, we must receive God's promises in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture, and in our doings, that will of God is to be followed, which we have expressly declared unto us in the word of God. For as we've said, the Bible not only teaches God's absolute sovereignty, but also your real freedom to act. And Article 17 is saying that you are to obey God's will, you are to act in obedience to God. Uh, his, and what is that? His expressly declared will in the word of God. You must positively, but with God's strength, solve your problems. Assuming then that freedom and duty to obey God's word, what does the Bible actually teach about predestination? Well, let me mention three things. First, the teaching in verses 29 to 30 of Romans 8. For those whom he, that's God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Among those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is a wonderful summary. And note, you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Then secondly, predestination is neither God knowing who would respond and then predestining uh, them, nor is it that God's predestining an open community which anyone uh, is free to join. Now, the biblical understanding of it uh, is clear from Jeremiah's experience. And uh, you need to look at it now, but it, Jeremiah, 1 to, uh, the, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 5 says this. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That was a clear individual choice by God of Jeremiah. 
Now, the third thing relates that you need to know about this, what the Bible teaches, is the issue of whether God predestines people to hell or damnation, as the uh, article uh, articles, uh, uses, the, the word the article 17 uses, as well as to heaven. Now, here you need to follow it carefully. I haven't time this morning to go into verse 18 of chapter 9, across the page, where Paul is going into more detail about predestination. Uh, it says that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. All that I'll say is that if later at home you wanted to study that, in chapter 11 you discover that that hardening is all part of God's merciful sovereign purpose for salvation. Have, if you now look at chapter 9, page 945, and verses 22 to 24, you read this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he had called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Notice first what Paul says. He says, what if? He hesitates about being dogmatic, but here too, God's sovereignty is a sovereignty of mercy. God is withholding his wrath. Look at uh, the, that, what it says. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Then notice something else important. In verse 23, Paul speaks of the vessels of mercy which he, that is God, has prepared beforehand for glory. However, in the previous verse, in verse 22, you simply read about vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It does not say that God prepared them for destruction. There's a hesitation. And that parallels Jesus himself where in Matthew uh, 25 and the parable of the sheep and the goats, as we heard in our gospel reading, Jesus is speaking about the final judgment. In Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus says to the ones who have been faithful and obedient, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But in Matthew uh, 20. Uh, five, later on in verse 41, Jesus says to the disobedient, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So the obedient are described as blessed by my father, but the disobedient are described simply as cursed, not cursed by my father. And the obedient are told in verse 34, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. But the disobedient are told in verse 41 about the eternal fire prepared, not for you, but for the devil and his angels. Well, what does that all mean? Well, answer, there is indeed hell. However much that's difficult to understand. But there is no mention of the Father predestining men and women to it. The stress is all on men and women who choose it by their freely rejecting or ignoring God's word and God's will. And uh, the Apostle Peter, you can look at it again later, 
uh, in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 4, and Jude, verse 4, similarly, do not say God is the one predestining men and women to hell. Yes, the Bible teaches that hell awaits the lost, but it does not say that it is God's own desire or predestining purpose for them to go there. The Bible focus is on God-defying sinners as the cause for their damnation. Now, I've labored that point because Article 17 does not teach what is called double predestination. That is predestination to life and heaven and to death and to hell. So the opening words of the article are predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, not predestination to life and death is the everlasting purpose of God. Now, this was an issue at the Reformation, which people are thinking about this year, the 500th anniversary of Luther's nailing those theses to the church uh, door in Wittenberg. And it's been an issue ever since. So one famous Reformed confession you read, I quote, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated into everlasting life and others foredained to everlasting death. Well, that's in the Westminster Confession. That is logical but we have to be aware of being more logical than the Bible. On this, the Bible's cautious how it speaks, and so should we be. So Article 17 doesn't positively teach double predestination. It does not deny it, but it does not assert more than God has revealed. Well, that thirdly brings us to our response to predestination and Article 17. Let me read more of Article 17. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God, be called according to God's purpose by his spirit working in due season. They through grace obey the calling. They be justified freely. They be made sons of God by adoption. They be made like the image of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works. And at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. Now that's a great description of a Christian believer according to New Testament teaching. But then Article 17 goes on to talk about the response to predestination and election. And it talks of two responses. The one is by the believer who believes God's promises and has, to quote uh, the article, a godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ. The other, by contrast, is from what it calls curious and carnal persons lacking the spirit of Christ. And it says that in the case of such persons, non-believers who don't take account of all that we've been considering so far this morning, the devil uses this doctrine of predestination and election to quote, to, to again I quote, thrust them either into desperation or into wretchlessness of most unclean living no less perilous than desperation. Either they despair wrongly, believing God has predestined them to go to hell, when they should have believed that if they trust Christ, they won't. For God has famously said, as we all know, or many of us know, that John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, and that means anyone and everyone, whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Or, for whatever reason, they reject God, perhaps wrongly thinking God is unfair because of predestination, 
So they then start living in a hellbound way, or as the article puts it, in wretchlessness of unclean living. And that is why this doctrine of predestination is for believers. It's not helpful for non-believers. But as the article says, to give you the full text, for believers, the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh, and their earthly members, and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things as well, because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ, as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God. Now that, of course, is uh, 17th century or 16th and 17th century language, but it's brilliant if you think about what it's been saying. We've only time to focus on that section where it says, for believers, the doctrine of predestination doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ. Now, as the Bible says, Romans 8, and Paul says, uh, verse 30 teaches, those whom he God predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So your justification was predestined. That means your faith was too. And don't get that wrong. Faith is not your contribution to your justification. It's not a good work. Your sin was atoned for, as we're thinking this morning at this communion service. And forgiveness made possible by Christ's death alone. Not by Christ on the cross plus your faith. As the article says, by his spirit, working in due season, you, through grace, obeyed the calling. You were then justified freely and made sons of God by adoption. Now, isn't that so true? If you look back on your life, you can see how you aren't ultimately responsible for being here this morning in church, believing in Jesus Christ, if you are a believer. I certainly am not. I just was in the right place at the right time with the right people with hundreds of right, quotes, coincidences. The theological name for those are the providences of God. As Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8 and following, makes so clear, you are not saved by faith, but by grace. For God, by grace, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith is the God-created faculty of responding to grace. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the purpose of God's predestination in your life is for living a godly life uh, and doing good in your private life at home and in your public life out in the wider world. But the consciousness of God's predestination in our lives is that according to Article 17, it doth greatly establish and confirm our faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ. It gives you great assurance both for the present and for the future. When you fail as you will or suffer as you will or a host of problems come your way as they will. 
That's why Paul, after introducing the subject of predestination in Romans 8, verses 29 to 30, concludes with verses 31 to the end of this chapter. And with that, I will conclude. What then shall we say to these things? All the things we've thinking about this morning. Well, if God is for us and his predestining purposes are evidence, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring up any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And I suggest we respond to that remarkable passage. Uh, in one sense, you couldn't do better than by singing Newton's hymn. It's so familiar to everyone. It's sung at football matches and goodness knows what. But let's think of all the words uh, in each of these verses as we think them, can we? Amazing grace, because this is what predestination is all about, God's grace. And it is encouraging, and it should be, in a difficult life and a difficult world. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Will you please stand as we sing?